And that was the moment when I was in that Sunday school class that, that time when the, the Lord put a strong conviction in my heart that in my lifetime, I would live to see the second coming of Yeshua. And he put upon my heart to want to know what the Bible has to say about his second coming. So as I live my life uh, and learn the Bible prophecies, I could be excited and say, hey, that's a sign of his coming. Hey, that's a sign of his coming. I'm looking forward to his coming. So, so I don't know about you. Uh, uh, when you're younger, you think you're going to live forever. And you have all these dreams and aspirations. But as you get older, you realize that this world isn't all that great, you know. And, and, and you're actually looking forward to the Lord's return and for his kingdom and for there to be a thousand years where he's ruling in the earth and the Torah is going forth from Jerusalem and he's ruling and reigning and this world is full of true justice and righteousness. Right? Isn't that something to look forward to? But sometimes it's mischaracterized and it's phrased this way, you know, um, um, maybe in a few years, the end of the world's going to come. Well, the world's not coming to an end. I mean, we have at least a thousand more years, okay? So the world isn't coming to an end. It's just being transformed into a new season, a new era, and that new season is better than what we have it now. And so the, the world's not going to blow up and disappear, you know, in the next couple years. And so... Uh, so, therefore, for me, the restoration of all things and his, and his second coming is something that I look forward to because things will be better than what they are now. And so, therefore, given that uh, 40 years ago, I don't think this congregation existed, did it? All right, 37, all right. So, I don't know whether 37 years ago is that when the, the the restoration and return of the Torah was realized, or did that come later? Okay, a few years later. Well, you you guys were really early birds. Okay, so <clears throat> um, uh, for me, the beginning of my awareness of what ends up being uh, this walk and this lifestyle started for me in 1989. So 30 some years ago. All right, so. Similar, similar time frame, uh, the 80s. What, and so, um, why is it and, and what is the Lord doing in our generation and in our time? And where is it going? Because sometimes we can get lost in the moment and not know where it's going. And if you don't know where you're going you'll probably end up going somewhere else. You, when you start out, you need to know where you're going and why you're going there and how to get there. And so the Lord knew because biblical history's prophecy. So in the history of the nation of Israel, um, they were engaged in mixed worship. And the God of Israel... Um, he showed and forbid mixed worship clear back in the Garden of Eden because it was represented by two trees. One's called the Tree of Life. And uh, in Proverbs chapter 3, Revelation chapter 22, what is the Tree of Life? It's the Torah. So it, it represents following Yah in His ways. But what was represented in the other tree? It, it was called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. So what does that tree represent? That tree represents mixed worship. So from the beginning, our choices is following and doing it Yah's way. And he doesn't want to follow him in the context of mixed worship. So that's always our challenge from the garden, challenge in the, in the nation of Israel. And it's our daily challenge as we live this life. And you know, when we live in... Uh, America, uh, uh, they're trying to impose upon us mixed values. And actually, if you think about it, the mixed values that they're trying to impose upon us is Babylonian values. 
while we're trying to maintain a godly biblical lifestyle. And in our culture, um, those values clash. And so in, in that regard, we aren't any different than the children of Israel um, who lived in the promised land. And they were given commandments from Mount Sinai to go into the promised land to follow the Torah. But their culture in the land of Canaan was a mixed worship culture. And they were challenging that. So that's why and how we can read the Bible. And it should be able to relate to the days uh, and the, uh, the times in uh, which we're living. And Mark, if you don't mind, I spent uh, yesterday with uh, him and his wife. Wonderful time. So blessed that I was able to come a day early and, and spend time with them and, and uh, then come here. <coughs> uh, but he told me a, a, a story when we were sharing about how he had had COVID. And a special person came to him while I had COVID and basically gave him a message and says, The Lord's holy and we shouldn't be a part of mixed worship. Well, that's the message from Genesis to Revelation. The Lord is holy uh, and we shouldn't be a part of mixed worship. And so... The northern kingdom got into mixed worship, and that mixed worship was called the sin of Jeroboam. And uh, when we study our Bibles, it's not very often that the sin of Jeroboam is mentioned. But if you go back and study um, what was the sin of Jeroboam, well, the sin of Jeroboam was just that. The sin of Jeroboam was mixed worship and this mixed worship is likened to a golden calf system of worship so in first kings in chapter 12 beginning in verse 26 it says jeroboam said in his heart now shall the kingdom return to the house of david now here's what he's doing is he's trying to have an express faith in the god of israel um, but he's trying to align it with the circumstances in his life and with human reasoning that's a part of those natural circumstances. So that becomes the principle of how we get involved in mixed worship. You see, we have a flesh, and our flesh wants to do what it wants to do. And if you try to go contrary to the flesh, the flesh will just yell and scream at you. It just doesn't like it. And, and ultimately, uh, then, we've given a, been given a brain um, to make uh, discerning decisions. And we can make decisions according to the values of this world, uh, which the Bible calls the carnal mind, and logical reasoning that opposes the word of God, which is called the carnal mind. And the, or we can make decisions according to the Torah, in the values of God, that's why he wants his word to be written upon our heart, and to write it on our minds, so we begin to think, and our values come from him. And then we're making decisions according to his values, not according to human values or human philosophy. And so here we have, uh, and... I'm going to share you uh, one scripture about that. Paul wrote in uh, Romans in chapter 8 and verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is an enemy against God, and the carnal mind is not subject to the Torah of God. You see that? The carnal mind does not follow the Torah. So, the carnal mind is that. So, what is the carnal mind? It's human, logical reasoning that is contrary to the Torah or the Word of God. And we as human beings have been made to operate in default mode. Our default mode is the carnal mind. And that's why we have to renew our mind. We have to change our thinking um, with the word of God. So 
back to the sin of Jeroboam in First uh, Kings uh, in chapter 12. Once again, verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If the people go to do the sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Now, what's that? Well, that's what the Torah says to do. So I can substitute the, those words with, if I obey God, right? All right, so if I obey God, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, what's those words mean? If I obey God, then it won't be good for me. That's what he's saying. Do you, believe, do you know it's possible for you to be in a situation in your circumstances that because the how you reason regarding your circumstances, that your circumstances may oppose God and his ways, and you begin to reason that if I obey God, it won't be good for me. But you still believe in God. And so therefore, you try to believe in God and work it out, but then, uh, then you go according to this reasoning and rationale. And so ultimately, uh, that becomes mixed worship and how mixed worship can come into our lives. So now what's happening here is going to be called the sin of Jeroboam. Okay, now let me give you uh, an example of how the sin of Jeroboam operates in the church system. All right, so... Um, probably most of us here are only here because we're willing to listen to different viewpoints and we're researchers and seekers of truth. And so in your willingness to um, listen to viewpoints and maybe different viewpoints on the Bible and what you end up believing uh, is the truth of the Bible, like me, coming to the understanding of we really are supposed to keep Sabbath. Okay? But now your love and your zeal for the Word of God and for Yeshua, you want to go tell your friends, you want to go tell your church, you want to go tell your pastor that if we're biblical, we need to keep the Sabbath. But a pastor on church, um, you would think that the way that he's going to look at what you say is what does the Bible say and we're going to do what the Bible says. Now, in reality, it only works that way circumstantially because what he's going to do is he's going to look and say, now, wait a second. If I keep the Sabbath, it won't be good for me because everyone in the church is going to leave and then we won't have a church and what's going to happen to the building and what's going to happen with me and what's going to happen to me 20 years from now? And so, therefore, if I obey God, it won't be good for me. So, therefore, we're not doing it that way. Let's come together and worship God, but, 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 but let's consider our circumstances in doing it. And so, this is the mixed worship and the reasoning that Jeroboam entered into from counsel. It says, verse 28, wherefore the, t- the king took counsel. And they had a church meeting, Okay. With the elders, uh, the king took counsel. He made two calves of gold and said, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. It's too much for us to obey God and do what he says and follow the Torah. Um, Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, it's quoting from Exodus 32, where the children of Israel built the golden calf. And so then it says, he made an alternative system of worship. He set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Instead of what? Instead of going to Jerusalem. Now, what they did in Jerusalem, he emulated in Dan and Bethel, but didn't want to go to Jerusalem. So there's an alternative place of worship. And it says this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and he made priests of the lowest of people which were not of the sons of Levi. So the Torah says the priests are going to come from where? From the Levites. Well, now he's going to say, well, you can teach the Torah, but you don't need to be a Levite. Okay, this is an alternative priesthood or an alternative leadership system. And then it says, uh, verse 32, Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast in Judah. What's the feast of Judah that he's talking about? 
on the seventh month and the 15th day, which is what? The Feast of Tabernacles. So, okay, we're going to do the Feast of Tabernacles, but not on the seventh month and the 15th day, like it says in the Torah in Leviticus 23. We're going to do it on the eighth month and the 15th day. So now we have an alternative celebration of holy days. Okay, so biblical history's prophecy. So when I became aware of what Jeroboam did one day, because what I just read to you wasn't mentioned in church. I, I mean, I went many, many years and didn't know this was in my Bible. So one day the Lord showed this in the Bible, and I learned that, that biblical history is prophecy. And then I says, no, wait a second. If it's biblical history is prophecy, is it possible that from 2,000 years ago that we did the same thing? And I started thinking about Constantine and, and how we have inherited our worship system that we have today. And it's like, oh, we did the same thing. Uh, we, we, we have done mixed worship. And um, um, some, of you, some of you, in love, genuine love, uh, for, your, for your brothers and sisters, uh, for your brethren, um, you, in, in your excitement uh, and believing in Yeshua and having a Hebraic or, or Torah understanding of the Bible that goes along with that, um, you eagerly want to share with those around you, which is what you should do. Um, however... What you may not realize is they are worshiping the God of Israel at a different altar than you. I don't know if you've ever thought through it, but in essence, they are. And you're, all, you're, you're ending up debating about which is the proper altar. And they love the altar that they're at, and they want to stay there because at that altar, they are, they are worshiping the God of Israel. But you're saying, well, I worship the God of Israel too, but you need to do it over here on this altar. And so uh, it becomes a challenge. Well, let me share with you a prophecy um, that was given to the northern kingdom. Uh, in Hosea uh, chapter 8, in verses 11 and 12. It says in uh, Hosea chapter 8, verse 11, because Ephraim has made, that's past tense. Because Ephraim has made many altars to sin. Now that's what happened literally in the days of Jeroboam and the succeeding kings of the northern kingdom. That in expressing their faith in the God of Israel, uh, they mixed it with the ways of the people around them. And there was an, there's a name that the Bible gives to the mixed worship. It's called Baal worship. Now, if you don't realize that Baal worship is mixed worship, and Baal worship contains worship of the God of Israel. If you're not aware of that, you would just read Baal worship, and you think, well, that was a different religion, a different faith. Somehow they're worshiping some other God. All right? But uh, let me show you uh, as, as something uh, that the northern kingdom uh, did in their uh, mixed worship. And... When the Lord shared this to me one time, I was like, wow, I was just amazed. So this is 2 Kings in chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 17 in verse 32. Now, this is telling the heart of the northern kingdom in their worship. It says in verse 32, so they feared Yahweh. Now, don't think very long. I'm going to ask you a question. It's not complicated. I'm not trying to trick you or fool you. So what I mean by that is 100% of the people here should be able to answer correctly, okay? So when the text says they feared Yahweh, is that good or bad? Thank you. It's good. Told you it wasn't a trick question because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want you to notice the text says that in their heart they feared the Lord. So um, your brothers and sisters that... Maybe in the traditional church system, those that are there, and, and most of them, um, are they sincere in loving the Lord and fearing the Lord? If you're honest, of course they are. Of course they are. But here's what it says. While fearing the Lord, that they made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. Now, is that good or bad? That's bad. So notice what they were doing bad. They were doing it while they feared the Lord. 
And so it's because they really were fearing the Lord that it becomes a challenge to them when you go to them and tell them, uh, you know, you're not worshiping the Lord the way he wants you to worship the Lord. And they look at you and like, well, who's you to say um, that what, what you're doing or what you're telling me is better than me? Because I fear the Lord. I love the Lord, too. So, like, what's the deal? Can you see? And so now the verse states that they feared the Lord. Now, let's go to the next verse. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 33. It says, they feared the Lord. Now, notice what it says in verse 32. They feared the Lord. And now it repeats the statement in verse 33, they feared the Lord. So, if the Bible repeats something, of course, it means it's emphasizing something to make it very, very clear to you that they feared the Lord. And now, see what the rest of the verse says. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from there. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. Now, you know what your own gods would be? What my own gods would be? This thing right here. The flesh and what the flesh wants to do. The flesh is a god. And what human, logical, carnal reasoning and thinking wants to do that makes sense. Yeah, I should be doing this. I want to do this. That's a God. So we fear the Lord, but we serve our own gods. And we think and do things that make sense to us, but yet may be contrary to the Torah, that may be contrary to the Word of God. And so um, we are challenged every day with a mixed worship of the God of Israel. Okay? So now, verse 32, they feared the Lord. Verse 33, they feared the Lord. So do we got the message they feared the Lord? Okay, now let's look at verse 34. Unto this day they do after their former manners, they fear not the Lord. Whoa! Verse 32, they fear the Lord. Verse 33, they fear the Lord. So we can conclude they fear the Lord. How after, after being told twice and emphasizing they fear the Lord, the next verse says, they fear not the Lord. So uh, let's be Greek-minded here, okay? Let's be Greek-minded. So uh, did they fear the Lord or did they not fear the Lord? Thank you. Now you gave me a Hebraic answer. The answer is yes. They fear the Lord, but they also fear not the Lord. They're both true. No, they, they fear not the Lord, neither did they after... After their statutes or after their ordinances or after the Torah and the commandments, which the Lord commanded the children of Israel, whom he named Israel. So they didn't fear the Lord and they didn't follow worship of him the way he said to do it. But yet they were in their heart. They feared the Lord, but he but they're not doing it the way he said they've adapted it. All right, so. uh we got it. Verse 32, they feared the Lord. Verse 33, they feared the Lord. Verse 34, they feared not the Lord. So what do you think the conclusion of the matter would be? Well, let's go to verse 41 and see the conclusion of the matter. So these nations feared the Lord. And they served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their father's so do they unto this day. So are we unto this day. Now, I don't care who you are. All of us. See, that includes me. Um, all of us, in some form or fashion, in some level, are still living our lives in mixed worship. Even if we're coming here on Shabbat. Even if we did a Passover Seder. Um, because it's in our values and the way we think. And the way we make decisions. So all of us can go higher. All of us can do better. And elevate drawing closer to God. And crucify the flesh. No, what did Paul say about crucifying the flesh? He says... I die daily. You know, it's a fight. It's a spiritual battle. 
to die daily. And that's why the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit. And we, we need Messiah in us. And this is what counting the Omer is all about. It's to teach us that when we've, we've come out of Egypt, the world and the world system, put the blood of the Lamb on the door. That means we've now committed our lives to the Lord. We fear the Lord. But we're, we're still babes in Messiah. And a babe in Messiah is still going to walk in carnality. Um, but he wants us to go higher. So that counting the Omer comes with, you know, beating the wheat and, and, and making it in fine flour. And, and the chaff is thrown to the wind. So what we're learning during the season is there's a process in our walk, there's a process in our growth because where we're going is Mount Sinai. In other words, we're going toward the Torah and uh, elevating the Torah in holiness uh, in our lives. And we're beating, beating the flesh. We're beating our carnal thinking. And like I said, this is a process that we all go through. So... Um, notice, I want to I want to share with you something that, that that Paul said of his own walk and his uh, of his own journey. All right, and this is in Philippians in chapter three. Now, when Paul is writing the book of Philippians, is he a believer in Messiah? Of course, he's a believer in Messiah. Is he saved? Of course, he's saved. So now look what he writes. Um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained the resurrection of the dead, either were already perfect, that means whole, complete, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I'm apprehended of Messiah Yeshua. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things are before. Are before. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in God, in Messiah Yeshua. Let us, therefore, as many that are going to be perfect or, or whole or complete, be thus minded. All right, you see, he was not praying for or trying to achieve to get saved. He already was saved. He's, he's, he wants to go to a higher place in God. Okay, now he's calling that higher place in God. That spiritual higher place in God. He's calling that the resurrection of the dead. But he knew that, it, that there was a price to pay for the higher calling. Because you got to crucify the flesh. Now, in order to understand how the flesh likes to be crucified. You know, uh, we're taught that with our physical flesh. So you take your physical flesh. Don't do this, but you make a little cut in it, and you know what? It hurts. You're going to scream. <laughs> so it screams and yells at you whenever you try to crucify it. Okay, that's why it's such a spiritual battle. Okay, and, and so Messiah physically got raised from the dead, but Paul's making an association of that to be a spiritual a spiritual elevation in him. And he says, I'm striving for it. And that's the prize that I'm striving for. But um, I, I can't say that I've made it there yet. And so what Paul is communicating is a complete and total and full commitment to the God of Israel and to Yeshua. A complete and full total commitment. You see, we are in the process of committing our heart and our mind more and more and more and more to the total and 
commitment. So we come each week to get encouraged uh, to keep and maintain that devoted commitment. Okay? And so notice what Paul understood that and get to the higher place, what is associated with it. The fellowship of his sufferings. Now, uh, sometimes you got to think through and really, do I really want to pray um, something that is biblical, but you wouldn't want to so easily pray, I want to go through the fellowship of his sufferings. I mean, the flesh doesn't like that. And, and yeah, yeah, I wish upon you to go through fellowship of sufferings. But do you know in order to attain the resurrection of the dead, meaning the spiritual height in God, the way to get there is to go through the fellowship of his sufferings? And this is part of what we're learning in counting the Omer. And that, and, and that Omer being beaten and made of fine flour, that's one, that's one of the lessons that we're supposed to be learning in this season after we've done the Passover and, and we're working toward uh, Shabbat. We're working toward Pentecost. Now, uh, let me, let me uh, uh, share with you um, something else here. Uh, and that's in uh, Matthew and chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7. Now, this is going to be uh, aligning with what Paul was praying for. Okay? And uh, you probably are familiar with these verses, but I want to um, go a little bit deeper and show you what they're really saying. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, Enter you at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. You know how this verse has always been explained and presented to me? The broad way is the unbeliever, and the narrow way is the Christian life. But if you study the text, um, maybe generically that's true, but there's a deeper meaning that's being said there. You see? You see the word life there? That word life, we just render it as being a believer. But that word life is the Greek word zoe. It's the strong number 2222. And it got rendered this way in John 10.10. 10. I pray that may may have life, Zoe, and have it more abundantly. Actually, that word means the zenith of, of life, the top of the hill, the absolute best that you can achieve and attain. That's what Zoe means. The best that Messiah could give to you. That's what Zoe is, okay? So how do you get... The premium that God has. Now, the means to get to the premium is Messiah. You have to have him or she can't get to the premium. Okay? But where it says straight is the gate, you see that word narrow? Narrow is the way. That word narrow is the Greek word thlebo. It occurs ten times in the New Testament. This is the only place of the ten times that it's translated as narrow. You know how it's translated the other times? To suffer trials, affliction, persecution. So what the text really says, to suffer trials, afflictions, persecutions, and sufferings, is the way that you get the premium that God has for you in, spiritually. And because, it, because it's, it's trials, afflictions, persecutions, few find it. Why few would find it? Tell me somebody who wants trials, afflictions, tribulations, and persecutions, Okay. Um, but uh, in uh, the, the book of Acts, it, it, it says uh, that uh, through much tribulation, we enter into the kingdom. So we learned that there's a process during this time of counting the Omer. That's what counting the Omer, the lesson about it is all about. Uh, because not only is the, the chaff blown into the wind, but it, it's, it, it ultimately, you know, how it was historically done, you know, it was heated. And so that's judgment, trial, tribulation, uh, sufferings um, that you may go through. So 
Uh, Back to uh, Hosea chapter 8. And uh, verse 11, it says, Ephraim has made many altars to sin. Now, that's what I read to you back in the book of Kings. They feared the Lord, but then they served their own gods. And they made um, altars in the high places. Now, that's historically literate. Because he made many altars to sin, now here's, that's what he sowed. So now now there's going to be a prophecy about what he's going to reap. Altars shall be unto him to sin. In other words, it's a prophecy that altars will be made for him that will cause him to sin. What's an altar? It's a worship system. So it's a prophecy that a worship system is going to be made for him that's going to cause him to sin. Now, what do you have to do to sin? 1 John 3, 4, you've got to transgress the Torah. So a worship system is going to be made for him then that worship system is going to cause him to not follow the Torah. And I can show you that it's speaking of the Torah, because in verse 12, Hosea 8, 12, I've written to him the great things of my Torah, but they were counted as a strange thing. And so, in other words, an altar is going to be made for him that's going to tell him, believe in the God of Israel, worship the God of Israel. You might say, have faith in Yeshua. But in this altar worship system, we don't follow the Torah. Okay, now, when we generically say that we're not following the Torah, that's not completely true. Even in Sunday church, that's not a completely truthful statement. I was in Norway several years back, and it was there that somebody, I was in a home Bible study. I was invited to speak in the country of Norway, and one of my stops was at this home fellowship. And, and, and the, the person that hosted me there, um, you know, uh, he said, uh, can I share something with you? And I, he said, yeah. And, and, he, and he shared with me a definition of Torah. It was a divine appointment because you know what? To this day, he's the only person um, that I've heard give this, defini- this biblical definition of Torah, even in this movement. Okay, so here's what he said. He said, Torah... Is, or Torah equals, or what is Torah? See, the word Torah is just generic. The word just means the teaching of God. Okay, but if I just say, hear the teaching of God, well, it has to become specific. What specific thing are you trying to teach me? But generically, we're sharing a teaching of God. Okay, so Torah is statutes plus judgments now statutes and judgments aren't everyday words that we speak it's kind of like king james words okay we come and meet together and we might hear those words in our king james bible and so to be honest with you i wasn't 100 percent clear what a statute and a judgment was so i want to know what a statute and a judgment was so i looked every place in the bible where the word appears to find out what it is statute everywhere in the bible where judgment appears see what it is Here's basically what it is. A judgment, which in Hebrew is mishpat, plural mishpatim, is the category of commandments that are associated with how you treat other people. Now, how you treat other people is logical. So, um, if we had an atheist, if you go out and meet an atheist out there, and you run up to them and hit them in the face. Please don't do that, okay? But if they're an atheist, they won't want you to hit them in the face. It, 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 if they're a believer in Buddhism or Hinduism or, 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 or Islam or something like that, it doesn't matter. Atheist, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, it doesn't matter. They don't want you to hit They don't want you to hit them in the face, okay? Now, you got a believer in Yeshua. They don't want you to hit them in the face. So it's just logical that you don't do that to somebody, okay? And it's logical you don't lie to them, you, you, you don't cheat, you, 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 you don't deceive them, you don't manipulate them. All people don't like that. Well, that's the category of commandments of mishpat, mishpatim, which all of those things are summarized in love your neighbors yourself. It's also summarized in doing to others as you'd want them to do to you. Now, so if you really know that judgments is a part of the Torah, and that's what a judgment is, 
Yeshua actually said in Matthew 23, 23, that the way to your matters of the Torah is faith, mercy. If you do a study of mercy, it really means covenant faithfulness. Is trust, covenant faithfulness, and treating people properly, judgment. Faith, mercy, judgment. Okay? So really, the church does teach. The church does teach the judgments of the Torah. You won't got, got, you're not going to go in a Sunday church and they're not going to say, hey, go, go down to the 7-Eleven and, uh, and rob and steal it. They, they're not going to tell you that in church. So they believe that you should treat other people properly. But what they really reject, and when we say, oh, well, they don't follow the Torah, it's the statutes. So when I did a study on what statutes, um, without giving you a complete list, you know what the heart of what the Bible calls a statute? The Sabbath the annual festivals, and the dietary laws are statutes. So what is a statute? In Hebrew, it's hok, plural hokim. And the rabbis say a hok is a commandment that isn't logical to everybody. It's, for the most part, illogical. So if you go to an atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, a Baptist, Pentecostal, and you say uh, you need to keep the Sabbath, the dietary laws, uh, and Passover. That's not going to be logical to all of them. And because it's not logical, they say, why do we need to do that for? It's not logical. Okay? But if you actually look to see what the Torah says, when Yahweh says to love him, he says love him by, okay, we say you're the king. Right? Well, how do you acknowledge someone's a king? Well, you submit yourself to their authority and what they say you do, you do, because, well, you're the king. So if you tell me to do something illogical, I do it because you're the king. Now, you know, uh, I prayed when I was 16 years old that God's perfect will be done in my life. Now, I did it as an, out of an innocent and pure heart, knowing that that was the right thing to do. I did not know what really I was praying and I really didn't know what it would cost and what it meant to do that. Because they just told me, hey, when you pray, pray for God's will to be done in your situation. Don't just pray for God's will to be done. Pray for his perfect will. My innocent okay, that makes sense. But now I'm older and trying to walk in the ways of God, live my life according to the ways of God. And you know what I've realized after 40 years? That when you set your heart and your mind to do the will of God, in one particular area of your life, He's going to ask and require of you to do something that's not logical. So, was it logical to every day, for, to, to everybody? Was it logical uh, in the first century to everybody that the Messiah dies on a tree? His life ends by dying on a tree. Um, it wasn't. It's. It's. It, we study it. It's biblical, but it wasn't logical to everybody. Okay, you ever, you ever uh, think about Abraham in uh, Genesis in chapter 12, what, what the Lord asked of him to do? Now look, Genesis chapter 12, verse, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, get you out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, into a land that I will show you. So you know what his country, his kindred, and his father's house is? That's his known world. That's his comfortable world. So leave your known world and your comfortable world to a place that I will show you. You know what that is? He hasn't been there yet. He don't know what it's like. It's not known and it's not comfortable. So the Lord asks Abram to follow him, to trust him, to obey him, to do his will. And the Lord said, leave what you're comfortable and go do something that's uncomfortable in following me. See, it's not trust if it's logical. It's trust if, oh, you're telling me to do something and I need to trust you to get there because it's not comfortable and it's not known to me. So the Lord asked him to do that, to do his will. And Abraham becomes an, an, an example uh, unto us. So this is a part of the walk. Um, uh, this, this is, a, this is the, the, the part of the, of the faith. Uh, but ultimately, uh, ultimately then... Uh, the northern kingdom who prophetically foreshadowed what Christianity would do in the future, they were involved in mixed worship. 
And uh, Yeshua's ultimately going to come, and, he, and he's really coming for his bride. And how does he want his bride to be? In mixed worship or out of mixed worship? Out of mixed worship. But through circumstances and things, um, his people's in mixed worship. All right? So let's look at uh, Zechariah. And I believe it's chapter 2. And verse 7. Zechariah 2.7. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. So his people, Zion, is dwelling with the daughter of Babylon. That's mixed worship. So it says in Revelation 18, come out of her, Babylon, that's mixed worship, lest you partake of her plagues. So how's the Lord going to do this? This ends up being what we call the ministry of Elijah. It's the purpose of the ministry of Elijah. Because as we sang in the song, as the Lord prepared our hearts, in Acts chapter 4 verse 21 it says whom the heaven must receive now verse 20 and he will send yeshua hamashiach which before was preached to you whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things which god has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began you see the restoration of all things so in matthew chapter 17 Matthew 17, verse 10, the disciples asked Yeshua, Why is it taught that Elijah must first come or before the, come before the coming of the Messiah? Is that a proper biblical teaching that Elijah precedes the coming of the Messiah? And Yeshua said, Elijah truly shall first come. Shall, that's future. He will, and how do I recognize Elijah's ministry? Restore all things. What's he restoring? He's showing the people where they're in mixed worship. And telling them, this is the proper way you follow the Torah. And so it's a call out of mixed worship. Well, Yeshua was at his first coming. So who was the Elijah personality? Um, he says uh, it was John the Baptist. The Elijah's come already, verse 12. Uh, then the disciples understood it was John the Baptist. Because it says in Luke one seventeen, he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Okay, so now, uh, so now we have... Uh, in, the, uh, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, verse 5. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with his statutes and judgments. So the subject is remember the Torah of Moses. That's the subject. And keep the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before... Before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and hearts of the children to the father. That's the ministry of Elijah. To proclaim you need to keep the statutes. That's the Sabbath and the festivals and the dietary laws. As well as loving your neighbors yourself. And that's going to turn the hearts of the people of the God of Israel to the fathers. The covenants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now look how it ends. Lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. So I want you to think about this and its ministry in the times which we're living in. And then ultimately I'm going to have to do part two um, after we uh, uh, take break and have Oneg and, and come back and then focus on uh, the second coming as this first mess, this first part of the message was more focused on the restoration of all things, uh, that have you ever thought about, given that um, John the Baptist, his ministry was of the spirit and the power of Elijah. So he had an Elijah ministry. How long was his ministry? Um, could, it, could it have been one year? If Yeshua began his ministry at 30, and we talked talk about John, could it have been one year? Could have been. Um, without trying to answer the question, um, what if he started his ministry at 20? Say it was 10 years. So let's give it a range, one year to 10 years. Okay. Do you believe, as the song says, that we are in the days of Elijah? We are in the days of restoration? How long has this Hebraic Roots movement uh, been on? One year? How about 10 years? 
Longer than that? Well, guess what? The time that we've been given is longer to receive the Elijah message than those in the first century. If John's ministry was only one year, and we've been doing restoration for 25 years, we've been given 25 times longer than what they have. Isn't that the grace of God? He's given us ample, not only ample time, but an internet that we can think, oh, I wonder, what is this? <laughs> and, and have information um, that, that we can glean that we wouldn't necessarily have to figure out all ourselves. That there's ministries out there that, that you can go and congregations um, that you can learn from. So how I read this is we are going to give, be given a period of time of restoration. We're in it. We're still in it. But then it says, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. Now, how I read that is, now we, didn't we sing a song about seasons? All right. So there's going to be a season of restoration. But ultimately, that season is going to transition into another season. And that next season is, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. So is it possible we're doing the transitioning into that next season? Lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. Which is the judgments that are associated with the second coming of the Messiah. So is it possible that as a part of lest I come and smite the earth with a curse that perhaps the coronavirus and the vaccine might be a part of lest I come and smite the earth with a curse? Is it possible that if the Russia-Ukrainian situation gets out of hand, um, what if Russia starts to lose and gets backed in the corner and, and Putin does some unthinkable things? God forbid, if something like that happens, could that continue lest they come and smite the earth with a curse? Because ultimately, the days of Elijah is a bridge. It's a transitioning from where we've been. Where have we been? In exile. It's a transition to where we're going. Where is that? The end, the end of the exile. Now, the second coming of the Messiah is associated with the end of the exile. Most, most Christians don't realize and understand that. But it is. But there's a bridge. So what's that bridge? What's that transit? It's called the tribulation period. Where we're coming. The, there's going to be judgment as we go into the next season. But at the same time that there's judgment going on. There's going to be deliverance and restoration. And you want to be in the deliverance and the restoration and not the judgment part because they're going to be going on at the same time. So part of the Elijah message is not only return to the Torah, the restoration of all things, but it's to prepare Yeshua's bride for his coming, which entails, in one part, come out of mixed worship. But the other is to know and realize that his return, he's coming to end the exile which means to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel and bring them to the land. So we must be aware of that message as well while we're trying to live for him and survive on a daily basis and, uh, and uh, live and be faithful to him in our daily living and teaching our children on a day-to-day, -day, on a week-to-week -week basis. And so we, we got these multiple things that uh, we have to focus and work on and we can't elevate one or the other because we come out of balance, you know. Um, if we only talk about the second coming every week after week after week after week, we, 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 we lose focus on how we deal with the everyday. But if we only talk about the everyday, then we're not focused on his return. So we, we have to be balanced. So I've talked about the restoration of all things or laid a foundation of it. And that's going to lead us to and connect it with... Um, Yeshua's return at his second coming. And so um, that is what I'm going to talk about here um, after Oneg time because the Lord prepared it. Because what's the songs we sing? The king is coming. And he came the first time as a lamb, but he's coming the next time as a lion. And you even mentioned, uh, you know, about the lion roaring, etc. So uh, I pray that. Uh, part one of the message has been a blessing to you. Let's have a wonderful and great time of Oneg and fellowship with each other. Thank you for having me coming and sharing. And uh, the Lord will continue to bless us as we continue to worship and celebrate together for the rest of Shabbat.
May Yeshua be praised.